You are listening to Inclusion Evolution, a bi-weekly podcast that brings you insightful and engaging conversations on diversity, equity, and inclusion in the legal profession, the technology space, the world of sports, and our everyday. Here are your hosts, Lisa Mueller and Michael Kasdan. Welcome back to Inclusion Evolution. I'm Lisa Mueller. And I'm Michael Kasdan. Well, Mike, we're back with another episode. And today I thought we'd talk about allyship. And the idea for this episode came to me after learning about a male attorney in Cleveland who was fired from his law firm after sending a text message to a former female colleague that shamed her for leaving the firm after her maternity leave and then joining another firm. And I have to say, this text was one of the most inappropriate, disrespectful, and toxic exchanges I've seen in quite some time. So let me read the message before Mm -hmm. uh, I get your thoughts on it. So here's what he said. He said, I had suspicions you were interviewing two months ago, and I told Stephen then to ask you about it. I also told him to cut you loose at that time if confirmed. He was too nice of a guy to do so. What you did collecting salary from the firm while sitting on your ass, except to find time to interview for another job, says everything one needs to know about your character. Karma's a bitch. Rest assured regarding anyone who inquires, they'll hear the truth from me about what a soulless and morally bankrupt person you are. So Mike, I know you saw this exchange as well. What did you think when you heard about it? Yeah, it was hard not to see it because it very <laughs> it quickly went viral. viral. Yes. Yeah. And I think he had one thing, right? Karma's a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Uh, because, uh, but I don't think in the way that he intended uh, it to be or thought it would be. But I mean, I think this message, I mean, you know, we're going to talk about allyship today. Um, you know, this is, uh, this is, of course, like how not to do it, but it's also just misogynistic and kind of just downright, you know, mean to talk to someone this way. And I think also the first thing I thought actually, just because I think sometimes I like surround myself with humor to insulate myself from the way the world is sometimes is I remember um, maybe a couple months ago, seeing an article, like a law.com headline that said, you know, have, have we reached peak empathy in (laughs) big law because, you know, of all, because now we care about DEI and we care about mental health and people can work from home sometimes. And this was like, well, no, I don't think we've reached peak empathy. I don't think we're even anywhere close. No, definitely not. Uh, Far from it is exemplified by that uh, tax exchange. So let's go ahead, Mike, and talk about allyship in more detail, because I know this is a topic that's near and dear to both of us. So let's start off with a definition. So, Mike, tell us what exactly is an ally? Yeah, so I mean, I think definitionally, an ally is someone who is not a member of an underrepresented or minority group, but who supports and actively takes uh, concrete steps to positively impact and affect change you know, for that group, like in a law firm, for example. Um, And usually, you know, an ally, um, you think about, you know, using your privilege, so being privileged, but then using it, you know, having some degree of power um, and, you know, building a relationship with that underrepresented group, you know, based on, you know, trust and consistency and accountability um, and, you know, using your privilege like for good but not necessarily not, not being the, the, the leadership voice out in front, but rather, you know, listening to the lived experiences of that group uh, and, and helping in situations, you know, where you can be helpful. 
And I think, you know, this is an issue that I've been thinking about for a long time. Um, I write on the side for the Good Men Project. Um, we've developed diversity, equity, and inclusion workshops focused specifically on allyship. Because, you know, I think a lot of people think, oh, like, I'm a man or I'm a white man. And this diversity stuff is for someone else and not for exactly. me. Um, and I think it's really, really important. You know, if you look statistically at when law firms or other businesses are successful, um, it's when you do have those allies involved, when you do have champions, when you do have people in position of power that are champion, you know, championing the cause. I think whether you're talking about being an ally to different racial or ethnic groups or different religious groups or, um, you know, women or LGBTQ plus folks or disabled folks. Um, it's kind of anyone that, that is an underrepresented or, or group that has barriers. And I, and I think, you know, so, so it's important. I've, I've thought, I've been thinking about it for a long time. I've written a couple articles about it and, you know, it sounds easy. It's one of those things I think that sounds easy, like, Oh, be an ally. It just means like be their friend, exactly. um, help them. But I think a lot of times, you know, to do it well, um, you have to kind of like marry two competing interests. Like you have to be willing to take a back seat and listen and learn and let other people lead. But then at the same time, you have to also say, okay, well, how can I be helpful? Where can I amplify? How can I use, you know, my network and my voice in places, you know, to help that cause? And, 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 and so it's, it is, it is like threading the needle. I think allies, you know, part of what we talk about, we talk about allyship is like, you know, you will mess up. It will be uncomfortable Absolutely. sometimes. Very, very important. Yeah, it's definitely not easy being an ally. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit more about what we as individuals and law firms can do to be better allies. But there are some different kinds of allyship that are out there. And um, the first one that I wanted to mention, because I have to admit it, it drives me a little bit nuts, is the performative allyship. And I've seen this in law firms and with individuals. You know, it's an individual or organization that will take some steps to profess their support for an underrepresented group because they think there's something in it for them. And so they might post on social media, likes and shares, but they're not going to do anything else other than that. Uh, in a law firm, it might be for management saying that they're going to sponsor or champion a particular group, but that's about the extent of it. They never really take any actionable kind of concrete steps to be more of an ally. It's a it's very superficial approach. And the problem with this performative allyship is obviously it's going to erode trust and lead to further exclusions and feelings for that underrepresented group of being repeatedly let down. So that one, that, that one's one that I have to say, uh, Mike, really kind of bothers me quite a bit when I see it. Yeah. And that's like the also just sort of checking a box or kind of exactly. lip service. I mean, I think you do have to be a little bit careful about this one because I think the other thing I see on the flip side, and I've experienced it myself and it's not fun, is, you know, when you are actually trying to support, um, you know, a cause, I think a lot of people say, oh, you're just virtue signaling and criticize, you know, critics criticism comes towards allies. So, but I think you're right. Like if it's actually just performative rather than, hey, I'm supporting a cause, I think, you know, you, you got to go deeper. Absolutely. But sometimes it takes a little, a little bit to figure out which it is. <laughs> exactly. Sometimes it's not readily apparent on that one. So yeah, um, yeah. the next type is intersectional allyship, and that focuses on how social characterizations such as race, class, or gender apply to an individual or a group. And many times they'll be overlapping in interdependent systems of discrimination or disadvantage there. So basically with 
intersectional allyship, you're acknowledging that everyone has their own unique experiences of discrimination and oppression. And so to be an ally in an intersectional kind of situation, you really need to be aware uh, and recognize the individual experiences that people can face because all of us are very, very different. Yeah. And I think intersectionality is one of these things where I'm constantly learning about and it can be a really complex topic as to how, you know, different aspects of, of people's identities, you know, intersect. And, you know, I can hear the criticism on the other side. I hear people say, oh, like, how many, like, how do we have to slice identity like 50,000, you know, million ways? But I mean, the, the thing is, like, it, your experiences and the groups to which you belong, um, you know, do intersect in unique ways. And, you know, everyone does have, you know, unique experiences, you know, part, you know that are all in large part driven by those identities. So I think, you know, this is just one that I'm constantly trying to, to learn more about. And, and I think, you know, you pretty much said it, like you have, it's, it's about awareness and listening. <laughs> and so much of this is about awareness and listening. Active and just be, listening. Yeah. Active listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then we yeah. have the upstander, which is the opposite of a bystander. So when an ally becomes an upstander, they, when they see something's wrong, they'll act on it. So they might push back on an offensive joke or a comment, even though, someone may say they weren't hurt by the remarks. So basically it's speaking up if you see some unfair or unreasonable behavior and supporting those who may have been the victim of those comments. And and I think really at the end of the day, that's really what being an ally is all about. Yeah. And this, you know, this upstander bystander topic um, could be its own and is, you know, <laughs> its own like series of workshops. I know people who do this work um, in police departments and sports organizations and schools. And I think it's just, it's really important. It's really hard. Uh, it's hard to be in that in-group and, you know, and, and call someone out. And I think when I think about this, I think about some of the work I did with the Goodman Project um, when all the, the Trump locker room talk came oh, out, yes. you know, and, and, and it's, it's, what do you do? What do you say? Not only when someone's out there, you know, of course, like, you know, one of your peers is harassing a, a woman. It's not only like speaking up there, but it's also speaking up in like, in that situation, like a male only space, like in a locker room and just being like, no, that's not cool. And, and it, you know, it, it's, I've spoken about this in school. Um, what you say to diffuse it doesn't have to be that much. It can be very simple because it's all about, it's really all about performance and credibility. And if you say, look, what you're doing is not cool, um, just that can be powerful. Um, but it's really hard to, to step up and get there. And, you know, I just read an article just yesterday. I think um, it was about how to, how to, you know, how to speak up, or how to act and confront people for kind of different personality types. You know, some people uh, are more comfortable being direct and some people are not. And it was, it was a really good article that, that sort of focused on, you know, how do you, how do you speak up and how do you be, uh, you know, an upstander uh, in those types of situa- situations? Because um, it, is, it is hard to do, but it can be really, really powerful. Absolutely. And then the final one I wanted to talk about is confidant. So that essentially means that you're an ally that creates a safe space for people to express their fears and they know that they can trust you and, and you can have an open and honest conversation. And that's really important to do because listening to stories and experiences while fully believing in the individual experiences makes people feel supported and safe. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Mike, I thought maybe we would turn and talk a little bit about what lawyers and law firms can do to be better allies. Sure, sure. No, that sounds great. I mean, I think for me, it starts with 
like self-awareness and learning always for for any of this stuff. So I think, and and I think this is, again, it sounds so simple, (laughs) um, but it's something that a lot of times we don't do very well. um, And it does take a lot of intentionality to do it. I, I think there's, especially in certain cultures, I think, especially in law firms, you're supposed to be a leader and you're supposed to be active. And, uh, and, and I see this in, you know, male <laughs> spaces and, you know, in Western spaces, like, you know, you want to be authoritative. And a lot of times it really behooves you to kind of listen. And, and it reminds me of this, like this one article I wrote, it was like, it was a good five years ago. It was for the Goodman Project. And it was around, it was right after Charlottesville, or the Charlottesville incident at that, at that rally um, in Virginia, which was just so horrible. And I remember reading, uh, there's a New York Times columnist who I usually really like, uh, named Frank Bruni. Um, and he came out with an article like the next day. And the title was, I'm a white man, hear me out. And he wrote about his, his subhead was, the legitimacy of my voice shouldn't depend on my degree of oppression. And it was all about like, exactly. hey, why can't I lead? And I was like, dude, like, just not now, first of all, (laughs) like, just sit back. And because this is not your lived experience, like, you should sit back and listen and learn. If you want to be an ally, don't be the guy complaining that your voice, you know, that, oh, my God, I'm a white man and my voice isn't being listened to. Like, just be quiet, listen, learn and, and figure out how you can help. Helping doesn't always mean like being out front and being the guy who writes the editorial. Exactly. And you really have to spend time being introspective and learning about the issues facing diverse colleagues. Like I don't, you know, I have certain experiences. I don't understand what other underrepresented groups have gone through. So it's taking the time to, like you said, read articles, listen to podcasts, watch TED Talks, things like that to, you know, learn about some of the struggles and uh, struggles that underrepresented and marginalized groups have faced and, and then having the courage to engage in a dialogue with those individuals and find out what obstacles they've faced and experience, um, and ask them, you know, what challenges are they dealing with at work, uh, presently? Yeah, and exactly. And I think that goes to like the next thing that I think we can do. And I know it's, it's, it's high level, but, you know, after the kind of the learning, it's like listening and actually, asking, you know, what, what you can do to help, like, what does the community need from you as an ally? And, you know, a lot of times, you know, allies, because of their privilege, like do have, you know, reach and network and authority and spaces where that underrepresented group might not. So it might be, you know, you can amplify our message, you can talk to these groups about it. And, you know, it reminds me of this, this other article that I wrote, actually about a Players Tribune uh, piece that a uh, basketball player, Kyle Corver wrote, um, you know, back, you know, three or four years ago. Um, and he, you know, he's, uh, you know, white, tremendously good three point shooter playing and, you know, on teams that are, you know, like heavily, you know, black and brown. And he became very vocal on talking about white privilege and how to be a good ally. And, you know, there was a lot of, a uh, lot going on in the NBA and in all the sports leagues, you know, in response to everything that was happening in this country and the Black Lives Matter movement. He wrote this very thoughtful piece, kind of recognizing, like, you know, I'm I'm a white guy, but and I have this privilege, but you know, I really have to engage my teammates and figure out, like, what do they want me to do? Like, how can I help? Right? It's such a simple question like how can i best help it's the important one to be asking rather than just kind of going off and leading and doing what you think is helpful which might not be 
um, or might take away the agency of the group. Um, so, you know, again, it's like it's sort of basic, but you don't see a lot of people or, or oftentimes you don't see people stopping and saying, like, what do you want me to do here? Like, how can I best help? Um, so, so I think that's kind of next on the list. Yeah, absolutely. And your actions need to align with your words. And that is so important. And particularly in law firms, that's really critical. And for example, you know, law firms need to ensure that their management's culturally competent in how it messages inclusion, equity, and equality to the entire firm. Individual lawyers should use their clout to ensure that quality and challenging works equitably distributed, that there's business development opportunities are offered, uh, that all uh, individuals are introduced to clients, powerful people, uh, things like that. I mean, it shouldn't just be the same individuals over and over again. It, sh- it needs to be more inclusive. Yeah, I, think, I mean, exactly, right? And so I think one of the big important roles for allies is to speak up, use their voice, use their clout um, to amplify the voices of those who might be marginalized and those who might not otherwise be in the spaces, exactly. right? So, you know, so in the simple example of, you know, I mean, the simple, like, I know it's like a 1950s style example, but still I think often happens. But, you know, if you're one of the men out on the golf club and that's where you guys are, you know, assigning work, it's, you know, talking about like, hey, let's get like my, my female colleague, you know, some of these roles and why are we having these meetings here and not in, you know, spaces where we all have a voice. And, you know, that can be so, so I think getting people, you know, using your privilege, using your power and connections, um, you know, to to get folks into those spaces and to get those issues front and center in those spaces, uh, I think is, is important. Yeah, absolutely. And, and likewise, in the law firm environment, there are a lot of mentor programs, but I think going a step further and being a sponsor of someone, you know, the difference being, you know, uh, a sponsor is going to be actively involved in someone's career versus mentoring where you're just providing advice for a limited amount of time. So I would encourage people to become allies by sponsoring individuals who are underrepresented in certain groups within their firm. And, you know, we talked about this before about calling out inappropriate behavior it's hard for people in underrepresented and marginalized groups to a lot of times raise these issues when there's inappropriate behavior. They fear backlash or jeopardizing their careers and a firm. So they're not going to a lot of times raise those issues. They'll just be quiet and, and hope they go away. Yeah. And I think, you know, that calling out of inappropriate behavior can be a tough one for for a lot Absolutely. of people. Um, and, and I think there are different ways to do it. The article that I, that I mentioned, I, I do think it's worth a read. It was in Fast Company. It's called How to Respond When a Coworker Says Something Offensive. It talks about a book by two NYU law professors, actually, called Say the Right Thing. But I think what I found most interesting about it is, you know, that there, you know, you can, there are a lot, a lot of different ways to do it. Like, you can educate while you're doing it. You can sort of ask someone to explain their views, like, huh, I didn't get that joke. Could you explain it to me? Or you could say, hey, like, you can you can educate someone, like, actually, I just read something on this. Can I send it to you? Like, or, you know, as, as a leader, you know, you can be more direct. You can say, like, as the team leader, I'm trying to, you know, it's my responsibility to uphold an inclusive culture and I need to address, and so therefore I need to address what you just said. Or, you know, there are lots of different ways to do it. And and I think it, it's an interesting read because I think, I think, that that makes people nervous, like speaking speaking out, and and I think people get get nervous when you talk about like call out culture, right? And like, oh, do I always have to be telling someone they did the wrong thing? And when when is when is it appropriate to do that? You know, in public, when do I do that behind closed doors? I think that 
sort of social media <laughs> has, you know, informed this whole thing in probably negative ways because it just gets really polarized. But I think, you know, in the workplace, there are a lot of different ways to handle it. And I think, you know, even jokes, uh, you know, I've, I've read really interesting pieces about jokes and how jokes, you know, and I love a good joke and I think I have a decent sense of humor, but, um, you know, jokes are really powerful ways to, powerful, yeah. uh, super powerful ways to like reinforce in, in groups and out groups. I mean, I, I wrote a piece that, that took apart like a comedy set and there were like 55 different, like horrible stereotypes in there that just kind of seep in. Um, so I think sometimes things are masked in jokes. And I think even in those circumstances, it, it can, can be important to say like, you know what, that kind of fell flat for me. And here's why. Absolutely. And if you're in a situation where you're in a group setting and you don't feel comfortable calling somebody out in front of the group, just ask that person to step outside the room or mm -hmm. grab yeah, them exactly. later and just pull them aside and say, hey, look, you know, that joke wasn't appropriate in those circumstances. And here's why. And it may be totally innocent on their part. They just had no appreciation. They didn't have the learnings to understand that that joke was offensive and inappropriate in those circumstances. So you can, like you mentioned, Mike, do it in such a way that it doesn't become adversarial. It doesn't, you know, become, uh, it doesn't explode into a situation that just spirals down a path of negativity. Right. It, it doesn't have to de devolve into like a shouting Mac, like, like on social media there. I think there are really tactful ways to do it. And, uh, oh, and if anyone's interested on the jokes piece, it was actually 23 times. It was, it, it, it's an article I wrote called 23 times Bill Maher got it painfully wrong in the span of an eight minute comedy monologue. Um, so you can check it out on the Good Men Project if My you're interested. Gosh. And I think, you know, talking about language and calling people out, you know, being inclusive in the language that you use is very important to whether you refer to, you know, someone's partner instead of, you know, girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, wife, mm -hmm. or, you know, I have a, a niece with Down syndrome. I, I'm always reminding people that to be more inclusive instead of saying disabled persons, a person with disabilities. So these, you know, people, person, uh, inclusive language forward, I think is really important as well. Yeah, for sure. And I know that's another one that people do push back on. I think of long conversations I've had about she, they pronouns and yes. why should I do that? And, you know, that that's perhaps its own topic for a different day. Um, but but yeah, I think using inclusive language um, is, is, is really important in the way uh, in, in establishing a culture of belonging in ways that I think, um, you know, that we don't even think about um, oftentimes. Exactly. And and then just to go back to a point we mentioned a little bit earlier about the uh, making sure that the quality and challenging works equitably distributed, business development opportunities are offered, introductions of clients, powerful people and influence are made. You know, I think that one, you know, we can't stress enough. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, those are like the real practical effects of, you know, bias in the workplace and, you know, not being inclusive that it has the real effect of like people getting different types of work, different types of opportunities. So I think it is really fundamental to being an ally or a champion to try and work really hard to pay attention to that and to undo that when there are problems. Now we talked in podcast four about unconscious bias. And, you know, I think that comes up here again too, you know, participating Absolutely. in unconscious bias training, uh, really, really important. Um, we all have these unconscious biases and to be a better ally, you've got to recognize and appreciate those. And as we mentioned, continue to learn. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's, it's not easy. Um, again, I come back to when I first started thinking about the word allyship and learning about it, 
it just seemed like the simple thing, but you know, it is, it is really hard work. Um, and I know you had some, some, some folks that you had read on that were addressing kind of the fears and how to kind of overcome them. Yeah. The one was Stephen Smith of Out Leadership, who said that a common fear that can keep potential allies from becoming active allies is the fear of becoming the target of abuse by standing up for others. And, you know, that definitely is a concern. As we mentioned, you know, maybe the best way to do it is just pull somebody out of a room and very quietly and very gently point out, you know, that something was inappropriate. Um, but it's perfectly reasonable, you know, and understandable of having this concern that your colleagues might not support you. But at the end of the day, um, the more you can educate people, the more likely things, you know, will slowly start to change for the better. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, in, in law firms, you know, aside from allyship in general, I think, I think pushing for change in law firms, uh, you know, oftentimes, it's hard. you know, conservative organizations, yeah. uh, you know, it's hard. And, and, uh, and but, but, but it's someone has to initiate that movement. And, and I think, again, I come back to like looking at, it, it's a real differentiator for programs that are successful and not successful is how well folks are doing allyship, how well, you know, the leadership of the firm is, is our, our allies. Um, and so I think, you know, it, but it's anyone that's top down and, and bottom up. But I think to be an effective ally, um, you know, law firm leaders, anyone in the firm, like you just need to take that that first step. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So, I mean, I think this is a topic that we could probably talk about forever. I think like like a lot of these, like unconscious bias, uh, you know, it sort of like it wins its way into our everyday. But I was so glad to get the opportunity to talk about this a little bit today. Um, I think that's all we have time for for this week. So Lisa and I will catch you next time on the Inclusion Evolution. Thank you for listening to Inclusion Evolution. The views expressed during this podcast are solely those of the hosts and not of their respective law firms. Share your thoughts with us by emailing us at llmuller at casimerjones.com or mkasden at wigan.com. 